The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia housing and see how home helps everyone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear a conversation about Indian soldiers of the First World War with author George Morton Jack. George's book, The Indian Empire at War, looks at the experiences of almost two million Indian volunteers who fought in the conflict. BBC World History's editor, Matt Elton, met George in London to find out more. Whose stories do you tell in your new book? So my new book tells the story of the one and a half million Indians who fought with the British in the First World War. So that's alongside the British all around the world uh, from 1914 to 1918, meaning anywhere from the trenches of Flanders uh, to the Indian home front, British home front, and also the war's wider fronts in Africa and Asia. This is a, a big subject, a big story. Why do you think it's something that has perhaps been neglected in the past? I think it's, it's neglect is extraordinary because... Broadly speaking, it has been a neglected subject for almost 100 years. And there are two sides to that. On one hand, in the UK, the First World War 
caused such national trauma with more British soldiers losing their lives than in any other war. It was understandably a great focus on, on the British experience. And that led to the Indian part not being looked at as much as it could have been. But on the other hand, in India itself, there is the fallout from colonialism and problems of how India comes to terms with its colonial past. And when India and Pakistan uh, became new nations in 1947, there's an awkward question of how Indians who worked very closely with the British are incorporated into an Indian or Pakistani national identity. And the soldiers of the First World War had a close relationship with the British. They were paid by the British. They fought for the British. And that leaves an awkward question over the Indian soldiers. as How, how do we treat them? Are they, are they simply brave and loyal, which would be a British point of view? Or at the same time, how do they fit in as, as potential citizens of independent countries? And there's a t- tension there. We should talk a bit about um, sort of terminology and language. Um, do you think that the term Indian Army is a fair one, or do you think it kind of obscures some of the diversity of the people we're talking about? I think it can obscure exactly how diverse the Indian Army was 100 years ago. And by India, in the sense of Indian Army, and the book uh, whose title, uh, The Indian Empire at War, points to the broader geographical area that we're thinking about here, India 100 years ago meant an area that could be anywhere from Aden in, in the west, on the, on the south end of the Arabian Peninsula, all the way to the east, uh, to Burma, because to the British, that area was part of the Indian Empire, which was known as India for short. And so it's a much wider area than we would think of today with India as a nation state. So the Indian army itself was the army of the Indian Empire. And within that, there are all sorts of uh, religions, great diversity. And this, the soldiers who were uh, recruited are men from all sorts of different religions and nationalities today. So they might be considered Afghans or Pakistanis or Burmese and Nepali or Sri Lankan or Indian and one or two others. So there is this great diversity. And on the other hand, the British officers had a great diversity themselves. Some of them uh, were born and came from Jamaica. Some of them are Australian. Some of them are Canadian. Some of them are Irish. So not necessarily British as we might imagine today. And the, the sum of the parts here if we say it had men who spoke more languages than any other army in the world and also practiced more religions than any other army in the world. And in diversity in the First World War, we might think of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and how many different European, European peoples uh, were in that army. But the Indian army had a much broader range. And so what we're looking at is 100 years ago, the world's most diverse army. And what sources did you use to find out about their stories? Well, the, the main source that I found which was a dramatic discovery that really unlocked the whole subject for me, was interviews that were carried out in India and Pakistan in the 1970s by an American and Indian team of interviewers who went to the villages, uh, especially in northern India and southern Pakistan. And they found the last surviving Indian veterans of the First World War, and they interviewed them and wrote down their thoughts. And these transcripts were left in, in the home of the American leader, of this interviewing expedition uh, in New York State. And I came across a reference to his interviews, but they'd never been published. So I found him 40 years later, and uh, he gave me exclusive access to them. So my book is the first one that is, that is based on those interviews. 
It's extraordinary that this story hasn't been told in a single book before, isn't it? It is. I mean, there, there have been many books uh, touching on India in the First World War, uh, but my book, The Indian Empire at the War, is the first book that has looked at the global story of India and its soldiers and how they fought across Europe, Africa, and Asia. And it's that global view and a narrative which uh, has never been done before. We should go through then some of these uh, arenas, some of these kind of territories. Um, what was the Indian experience in the Western Front, for instance? Well, the Western Front was the first front that the Indians were called to. And interestingly, it was within hours of Britain declaring war on Germany on the 4th of August 1914 that the, the decision was taken by the British cabinet to call the Indian army to Europe to fight the Germans. And the Indians fought on the Western Front right up to 1918. And also Indians formed part of the Allied Army of Occupation in Germany in 1919. So Indian soldiers come to Europe for the whole war. And again, it's extraordinary how that has traditionally been neglected. The First World War, certainly in the UK, has traditionally been seen as a British soldier's fight. But the Indians were alongside them the whole time, including in 1914, when at the end of, end of October, the Indian soldiers provided one third of all British forces in France at a time when, had they not been there, it's almost certain that the British army would have suffered a catastrophic defeat at the First Battle of Ypres. Um, what was their role then? Why were they so pivotal? The British army in 1914 was a small professional force. And on being sent to France that summer, it only had so many men. It took time for new recruits to be trained and, and be ready to go out to France. And by late 1914, the British Army had already been fighting in France since August. It had sustained a high number of casualties. And it reached a point towards the end of October where its men were very tired. Some British regiments were down from 1,000 men to only 100. And they were so short on numbers that they couldn't cover their 30-mile front at Ypres by themselves. And that was when the Indian Army appeared in the Indian Expeditionary Force, arriving at the front in the last week of October, taking out one-third of the British line. And in the British Army's history, the First Battle of Ypres is seen as the last dying moment of the old army, where it almost made a last stand to save the British front. But it can be, it can be neglected that it was the Indian troops holding a third of that line at the same time, which allowed the British troops to hold on. Something I'm intrigued by is how this success um, may have changed the attitudes of British um, officers towards Indian servicemen. Do you think um, that they had preconceptions about how different Indian people would fight? And did this uh, battle change them in any meaningful way? Well, the, the British preconceptions were based on racism, with, in British minds at the time, a very clear racial hierarchy separating the different peoples of the world. And in the British mind, the Indian soldiers were less capable soldiers than British soldiers because it, they, Indian soldiers were not perceived to be uh, as strong or as intelligent, which is, of course, uh, the racial theory of the British Empire at, at the time. But for the British, crucially, when the Indian soldiers came to France, in British minds, they, they couldn't understand that the Indians were equals as humans. And as a result, that, that this myth grew up in British army minds of the Indians not performing as well as the British soldier. In reality, their performance was the same. However, the British 
because they were so stuck in that colonial mindset, they could only really look at the Indian soldiers in one way at the time. So despite the Indians' importance to the British in the front in 1914, the Indians weren't really given the credit for that at the time. And if you look at the British histories that were written at the time, they tend not to focus on the Indians. If you look at the private comments of the British commanders at the time, they're almost unanimous that if it hadn't been for the Indians, then the British might have lost. How do these ideas of uh, so-called racial superiority play into the colour bar? What do we mean by the colour bar? Well, the colour bar is a concept which the British in the newspapers and political speeches made a lot of in August 1914. And it was the idea that previously there had been a bar against Indians fighting Europeans. And the idea in British minds is that Indians shouldn't be allowed to fight Europeans because as a race they should be kept separate. And if they could fight Europeans, they might kill Europeans and then get ideas of equality with Europeans, which under colonial government uh, were unacceptable. And in 1914, with the calling of the Indian Army to Europe, as was said at the time, the so-called colour bar was lifted. Now Indians were allowed to fight uh, Europeans in Europe. Moving then to Gallipoli, what was the role of these servicemen in that uh, particular episode? Some Indian troops were moved to Gallipoli from the Western Front. And Gallipoli is, is the first example where we see real links between the different fronts of the First World War. And that's how we can understand it as a global war like the Second World War when we see individuals who have fought in France and then they move uh, to Gallipoli. And at Gallipoli, the Indian Army's role, they, they landed at the first day with the British and, and Australian and New Zealand forces, and the Indians served on Gallipoli uh, throughout the campaign, with some Indian artillerymen fighting almost every day of the Gallipoli uh, campaign up until early 1916. And uh, how about North and East Africa? What was the situation there? So the Indians served as in Europe, in North and East Africa and also West Africa from 1914 up until 1918. And in North Africa, the Indians are fighting uh, the Turks and Turkish-backed Libyan forces in the Western Desert and the Suez Canal in, into the Sinai Desert. And further south in East Africa, what's now Kenya and Tanzania and also Mozambique, the Indian troops uh, were fighting the German soldiers there. So that's white German soldiers and also uh, colonial African German soldiers. And it's the same story in what is now Cameroon. The Indians were also fighting the Germans there. To what extent is it fair to say that the attempt to capture German East Africa was a fiasco? I think this is a really good example of how we need to understand the First World War by not looking at any particular year. So in, in 1914, the Indian army invaded German East Africa, what is now Tanzania, landing from the Indian Ocean. And much like Gallipoli, this is an amphibious assault that goes disastrously wrong because it was badly planned. But both Gallipoli and East Africa are examples of events fairly early on in the war without good planning. Whereas later in the war, once you get better planning, there's greater success. So in East Africa, for example, you have the Indian troops fighting on until 1918 and being a crucial part of an allied force, including South Africans, who capture an area larger than Germany itself. Um, we often think of the Western Front as being like the worst low point of the war. Were there any um, parts of the world that the Indian soldiers were sent that were worse than that? Well, that's what the Indian troops certainly said at the time, and so did British soldiers. And the Western Front 
is very familiar to us for the daily life of the British soldier. And we're aware of the British soldier, what they wore, what they ate, being cared for by nurses, and so forth. And there are other fronts where British and Indian soldiers served together, where the story wasn't the same. And a great example of this is Iraq. And so different was the war in Iraq compared to the Western Front, that there was a public scandal about it in the UK in 1917, when an official report was published into, into how badly the war in Iraq had been handled. And it was the troops that suffered. And in particular, in late 1915, on the Western Front, you'll have British and Indian troops serving alongside, each day getting regular food. If they were wounded, they would have a high chance of survival because of the medical care that was provided for them. But at the same time, in Iraq, British and Indian troops fighting alongside each other, the same preparation to look after them in the front line and behind the front line wasn't in place through bad planning. And so you'll have, in some instances, hundreds if not thousands of Indian and British soldiers lying on the battlefield for days with no medical personnel to come and care for them, to treat them, or, or soldiers wandering for miles by themselves, in some cases being murdered by uh, Iraqis, when there wasn't the care or the logistical structure to care for them. And food was another area where on the Western Front, whatever happened to the British soldier, he was fed. In Iraq, it wasn't the same. A lot of troops went without food, and the best they could eat were captured mouldy biscuits. Mm. Um, And what role does religion play in this story in the Middle East? The Middle Eastern side of the First World War is in many, many ways the most neglected. I think it's It's not uncommon if you pick a book off your shelf about the First World War and you look at how much it says about the Middle East, it will certainly be less than what it says about the Western Front. But the Middle East was just as much a part of the war. And partly what rose the war to such importance uh, in the Middle East is the declaration of a jihad in 1914 by the Ottoman Empire. The leader of the Ottoman Empire at the time, the, the Sultan of Turkey, who is the leader of the Sunni Muslim world. And with Turkish political and also German uh, political pressure, he declares a jihad against uh, the allies, meaning that all Muslims across the world are called to rise up and fight the allies. How how close to succeeding did that come? The jihad of 1914 can be seen more for what problems it caused the British and how it was used as propaganda by the Turks and the Germans. And looked at that way, we start to see its ripples all around the world. So we have, for example, in, in Germany itself, prisoner of war camps for Indian Muslim soldiers, which are schools of revolution where the Germans try and indoctrinate Indian Muslim soldiers in ideas of the jihad so that the Indian soldiers will then volunteer and fight for the Germans or serve them as secret agents. As some Indian soldiers indeed did, there was one Indian soldier named Mia Mast who had deserted in France And in his prisoner of war camp outside Berlin in 1915, he volunteered to serve the Germans and he travelled overland as a German agent to Afghanistan and back to his village area in North India where he tried to raise a revolution against the British. And that's a personal example. But more broadly, the jihad leads to all sorts of attacks on British interests, in particular infrastructure, oil pipelines in Iran where the British government is a majority shareholder, and at the same time, the jihad was used by the Turks as, as, a, as, a, as a reason and also a motivation for its attacks from the, on the Suez Canal in 1915. And also 
as an idea behind the defence of Gallipoli. Mm. So it, it, it was a kind of a, a theme that really underpinned the whole of the war, in a, in a sense. Exactly. The jihad declared by the Ottomans in 1914 is a fundamental part of the First World War. And that's not something which people have included in the way, in the way they might traditionally see it, for example, with a Western Front focus. Why do you think that is? I think it goes back to why the Indian story has has been one of the First World War's neglected stories over the last hundred years. Once you have a, a strong focus on the British experience, in, in particular the British experience in Flanders, that was so traumatic for the soldiers and their families. If you have to cope with that, in the short term, that's what you're dealing with. You don't have time necessarily to start thinking about how global this war is. You're, you're coping with your own experience of it. And then over time, if there's already a focus on one area of the war, then that might be repeated. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The Indian soldier was in such a different and much more difficult position. It's really by comparing them that we can see how unfair and how tragic the Indian soldier's uh, position was. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Hmm. Um, what's nice about this story is it really does uh, reveal the global the global nature of this conflict. Um, are there any other parts of the world that you feel the Indian soldier um, can tell us more about the war more generally or about their experiences that we've not covered so far? Well, I, I think the main thing that the Indian soldier's experience can tell us about the First World War as a whole was how global it was in much the same way as the Second World War. So the Indian soldiers served in what are now 50 different countries around the world, which was more than any other army. So in that, you've got Indian soldiers who are serving in Italy in the First World War, who are serving in Greece, also serving in the Caucasus, serving in Iran, also serving in China, and other places too. And if we look at the Indian soldier in that way, as 
my book does, we begin to string together their experiences around the world. And if we do that, the Western Front ceases to be the be-all and end-all of the First World War. The First World War itself ceases to, ceases to be a European war with global aspects. We begin to see the First World War as a truly global war. And the Indian soldier can really show, show us that. And in particular, we can see this in the context of the Middle East, where Indian troops by 1918 formed the majority of the Allied forces of occupation, going from Istanbul, across Turkey, down Syria, into, into Palestine, through what is now Israel, in the area of Jordan, uh, down into what's now Saudi Arabia, and west into Egypt. The Indian soldiers are the primary force in this region. And it's the British who do so much along with the French to shape the modern borders that, that crafted the, the, the borders of the countries we now know in, in the Middle East. And it's difficult to see how that could have happened without the Indian troops serving the British at the time as the military enforcers of, of British power. Mm. I mean, how, how did being seen as colonial subjects affect the day-to-day -day life of recruits in the Indian Army? This is one of the hardest areas, perhaps, to relate to in the First World War. Because if we think of the British soldier who we're more familiar with, the Indian soldier was in such a different and much more difficult position it's really by comparing them that we can see how unfair and how tragic the Indian soldier's uh, position was. So, for example, the Indian soldier was paid much less than the British soldier. It's difficult with the different diff differences of exchange rate and so forth to work out with the Indian and British currencies. But on, on the whole, Indian soldiers were perhaps paid only half as much as the British soldier and, and perhaps less. Yet they were called upon to give their lives just as much. Equally, the Indian soldier because of colonial rule and how the Indian army was handled, it was structured on a racial hierarchy so that the leaders had to be white and white British officers. And under that were all the Indian troops. But the Indian troops weren't allowed to be promoted to positions of equality with British soldiers. So you have a promotion ceiling, say, within Indian regiments, where you have British officers in charge, but no Indian soldiers were allowed to rise up to a British officer's position. So that leads to a daily reality for Indian soldiers where they don't have room for promotion. And for professional soldiers, this is a source of enormous uh, bitterness and pain from day to day. And other differences. So in the, in the 19th century, physical punishments such as flogging had been outlawed for the British soldier as inhumane. But during the First World War, because the British saw the Indians as inferior, flogging was still used as a punishment for Indian troops. At the same time, we've got the power that some British officers had, meaning the generals who looked after the Indian troops, to order summary executions of Indian troops in the field. And this was seen in France in 1914, where some Indian troops were executed by the British because their commanding officer ordered it. And these are examples of how the, the Indian soldier was so much in the power of the British that they didn't have the same rights. And it's almost unimaginable to, for us today to understand how tragic and difficult that was for the individual Indian soldier. Given all that, to what extent was rebellion or desertion a problem? So there were a number of desertions uh, within the Indian army in the First World War, in particular in France and also Iraq among Muslim troops. And as far as we can tell, the, the sources indicate that a lot of this is religiously motivated 
with Indian soldiers not being comfortable as Muslims fighting the central powers, uh, including the Turks, as, as fellow Muslims. On the other hand, there are also several Indian mutinies. Some of these are related to uh, religion and an unwillingness, again, to fight Muslims in Iraq. But there's an interesting mutiny that took place in Burma, again, somewhere more familiar to us perhaps because of the Second World War, but very much uh, an area involved in the First World War. There were some Muslim troops and mutinies in Burma in early 1915, and the evidence is that they mutinied because they, they objected to their treatment as racial inferiors uh, to white men, and they were put in prison for the rest of the war. What factors kept soldiers fighting for these people who had quite a dim view of them? Why did they carry on doing it? There are so many areas to this, and I, I don't think there's a, a single answer. And we have to be so careful when we have the Indian army being as diverse as it was with men of different religions coming from so, so many different places. And it's important to remember that the Indian army in 1914 was a professional army, and the nucleus of the army as it grew, uh, ultimately taking in a, a total of one and a half million men up to 1918, there were many professional Indian soldiers, and being professional soldiers, taking a pride in, in their regiment, taking a pride in, in, in their military performance on behalf of their family or their caste or their community. And I think that professionalism, certainly among the older Indian troops who really hold together regiments, and some of these more professional Indian soldiers will fight in France. I mean, uh, the book has many stories of men like this, including one, one Muslim Indian soldier called Asala Khan, who fought in France, he then fought in Egypt, he then fought in East Africa. And he's an example of an officer who stays with the same regiment throughout the war, pretty much, and is always there as a leader with accumulated experience and knowledge of the war, who then brings on younger troops and helps them assimilate into the regiment. And if you're a young soldier coming into a regiment and you have somebody like Asala Khan, who's advising you and guiding you, then that helps to keep the, the fighting unit together. At the same time, we must remember that as colonial soldiers, the Indians' commitment to fighting to the British is an area of, of great difficulty. And in particular, the, the pay they received is an important motivation for them to stay in the army and not desert. A deserter would lose his pay. And a lot of the Indian troops come from rural areas, from from deeply underprivileged, difficult backgrounds as colonial subjects. And as a result, the army is a source of employment. And if there's one thread which runs through the whole Indian army's experience, it's that being employed and receiving pay from the British is a bottom line of, of why they're serving. Are there any British officers who stand out for having perhaps an atypically positive or caring attitude towards their Indian soldiers? There's a, a British myth almost which is very much part of imperial propaganda, that the British officer is somehow a caring father figure whose only concern is to look after the young Indian soldier. We know, of course, because of the problems of racial hierarchy and colonial rule, that we shouldn't be deceived by that image. But at the same time, there are interesting examples of how nuanced British treatment of Indian troops could be. So if we look at the Indian soldiers, British generals, they have different sorts of generals, and it's important to tell the difference between them. One example of uh, a British officer is James Wilcox, who was born in India 
and is a senior British officer by 1914, and he leads the Indian infantry in France. He's somebody who is very comfortable speaking Indian languages, having been born in India and, and grown up there as a boy. And on the Western Front, he's so horrified by the Indian losses into 1915 that he actually cancels attacks to save them from going to their deaths over no man's land. This infuriates Douglas Haig as the senior commander in 1915. And as a result, Wilcox uh, was sacked in September 1915. And Wilcox is an example of how the British officer could try and do his best for the Indian soldier in the context of the time. And Wilcox tried to do that by cancelling attacks so the Indian soldiers didn't have to go and fight the Germans when, in his view, all that would happen to them is that they would get shot. Um, in what ways did the Indian army differ at the end of the war from at the start? most obvious way that the Indian army changed is, of course, its size, going from a professional army of around 200,000 approximately and then taking in uh, a total of, of 1.5 million men by the end of the war. But in changing size, the Indian army also spread out. So that's why we have the Indian army being capable of, of going to all these different theatres because it becomes so much bigger. And by the end of the war, you have Indian soldiers in particular concentrated in the Middle East, with British grand strategy having changed from mixing uh, the Indian army and the British army in France as part of the British expeditionary force to focusing the Indian troops more uh, in the Middle East to fight the Turks rather than the Germans. And by 1918, what can be forgotten about the First World War is that it was very much an imperial war. And the British Empire, by 1919, reaches its largest territorial extent ever and that's largely because the Indian troops have fought to expand it that, that much, both in Africa and in Asia. And so what's really changed there for the Indian army is it's gone from being a regional security force in Asia for the British before 1914 into a global army by 1918, which is spread across three continents. And also it's an army which has changed. It's become one of the world's leading forces and so by 1918, there are ways in which the Indian army has learnt so many lessons of war since 1914 that it can fight sophisticated, modern, mobile offensives, as it does in Palestine, for example. And it knows many things about fighting modern war, which, for example, the American army, having entered the war in 1917, wasn't so proficient at. And how did these changes um, and the experiences of these troops um, change their lives politically and personally when they were turned home after the war? I think it's really important when thinking about the Indian experience from this point of view to take a long view and see a bigger picture. And we shouldn't remember the background in the 19th century, including in 1857, when there, there had been substantial Indian resistance uh, to British rule. And that never went away. And it is possible to look at the First World War and say in 1914, the Indians went to fight. And in 1918, when the world was engaging with ideas of self-determination, with President Wilson's famous 14 points and ideas of democracy and it being a war for democracy uh, spreading around the world, it's easy to look at that and think perhaps there was a change in the Indians by 1918 so that now they were more embrace, embracing ideas of democracy and they, they, they went home after the war, having seen other countries, including France, where... They would have stayed in French homes when they were out of the front line, seeing free French people, and then went home and thought, our country should be free too. Now, there is an element to that, but at the same time, we've got to appreciate that part of the British and Indian story of shared history from the 1800s into the First World War into the Second World War 
is a constant Indian need for freedom, which Indians are constantly aware of. And I think it does a disservice to them if we were to look at the First World War and say this was a point at which Indians suddenly realised that they should be free. It was something Indians were very aware of beforehand, of course, and we should see the First World War as developing that and developing the story of Indian politics and being critical to the story of Indian independence. You write that as the war drew to a close, the question was what political concessions would the British give in return for India's contribution to the war effort? What concessions did they give? Well, concessions here is it was a, a word very much used at the time, the idea being for the British that they wanted to keep India within the empire. And so they tried to negotiate with Indian political leaders to give them a bit more rope. And, and that's what a, a concession was by expanding the amount of political power that Indians could have, albeit always under uh, British control. And in 1919, the British gave all Indian soldiers the vote for the first time. And that wasn't the vote as we have it today. It was a vote for local legislatures in the Indian provinces, which looked after certain areas like, like education. So the Indian soldiers did, because of the First World War, get a say in Indian politics in a way that they wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for the First World War. But this is the story of Indian independence now, going from the 1920s up to 1947. Whatever concessions the British gave, that's not what Indians really wanted. Of course, like all colonial peoples, they wanted freedom. If you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask someone a question, what question would you ask? I'd like to ask the question, what kind of world do you want for your children? And I think it would be so interesting to hear the answers of the people who were alive during the First World War at, at the time on that, because it would show us how things are changing over time and what they wanted in the future, rather than getting some idea about how things were in the present, say, in a given year. And in answering that question, we might get a feel for how people at the time felt the world was changing because of the war and what they thought the future should be to make a better world for their families. And how would you like this book to change how readers view the First World War and of these stories within it, I suppose? There are two main ways that the book could help with that. I think on one hand, we need to take a step forward in how we understand British history. And it's familiar to us throughout the centuries of as being quite a Christian story involving, involving British kings or involving things that go on within Britain itself or the British Isles. Whereas British history has so many global aspects to it with British relationships with peoples from other parts of the world. And I think the story of India in the First World War is a part of British history and shows us how British history involves relationships with other countries. And people might not expect the First World War is, is a way into that, but the, the story of India in 19, 1914 to 18 is. And the second thing is that Perhaps the book can help people see the First World War as a global conflict, as something that really did affect the whole world, not something that was at most a European conflict, somehow with other things going on in the rest of the world at the same time. All these things are very much linked together. All the fronts are linked together. And it's seeing the First World War as a global war, involving Indians just as much as it involved British people, is very important to understanding the First World War and its part in British history. That was George Morton Jack. 
His book, The Indian Empire at War, is on sale now, published by Little Brown. For more on global history, pick up a copy of BBC World Histories magazine or visit our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Karen Harvey will be speaking about a bizarre rabbit-based hoax from the 18th century. (laughs) 